Well, last week, we looked at verses 10 and 11, and we saw the account of Judas Iscariot as he planned to betray our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the next two sections of Mark 14, we're really going into detail on one hand, the last Passover, and then the other hand, it's the first Lord's Supper. Now, of course, these aren't two separate events. They consist of the same event, and it's Jesus sharing a meal with his disciples in celebration of the Passover. Uh, uh, This was an event that commemorated the Israelites' deliverance from Egyptian bondage. But we call it the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper because this is where Jesus institutes the new Passover for the new covenant people of God. And the heart of this transition from old covenant to new is really a sad and tragic portrayal of Judas's betraying our Lord Jesus. It's actually Judas's betrayal of Jesus that leads to the institute um, to institute this new feast built upon the old feast, which actually points to the bread and the cup as emblems of the broken body and blood of Jesus at Calvary. As I mentioned a moment ago, up to this point in Mark's narrative, we've ob- observed Judas making uh, up his mind to betray Jesus. And he's already met with the Sanhedrin. And, uh, and the Sanhedrin was the religious establishment. And they agreed to pay Judas a price for doing so. And so that really started us on this journey of identifying Judas as the one who would betray our Lord. Now, the irony of this is pointed out by the fact that Judas wasn't an outsider to this group, but he was an insider. He, was, he kept company with Jesus. And again, we have to understand that age-old distinction of the visible people of God and the invisible people of God. The visible people of God are those that we see in churches, those who uh, represent the visible church. But the true people of God are uh, the elect of God, those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the earth. And there is a reality undergirding this. And this very text regarding Judas's betrayal of Jesus reminds us that of the reality of religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy is alive and well in the church today, just as it was alive and well and well in the company of Jesus and the apostles. And of course, the apostle Paul is clear that this should not make us worry. It should not make us fear. It should not make us tremble about the outcome of religious hypocrites. Because we know that God knows who his people are. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.19, but that God's word, uh, God's firm foundation stands bearing his seal. The Lord knows who are his. But then there's a warning. 
Paul says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's comforting to know that God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal that the Lord knows who are his. But you see, continuing in sin, continuing in an unrepentant state reveals that there are people in the visible body of Christ that are not really truly the people of God. And it's clear as we study these verses that Jesus willingly hardened his heart against Christ, the one he claimed to follow. And so God literally gave Judas over to Satan. Now, the one thing is, you, you, you wonder, God, uh, in, in other scripture, talks about hardening hearts. And you think, well, is, does that mean God is the author of sin? No, it does not mean that God is the author of sin. When it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, how did he harden Pharaoh's heart? We need to understand, in, in God's grace, he keeps even the wretched from going to the depth of sin that they are capable of going. And so to harden someone's heart is to pull back that restraint, is to remove the grace that is upon these people. And then they go themselves by their own will and volition into the depth that they so want to go. And so God, in his, in his grace, keeps people from going to that depth. But see, the unrepentant uh, sinner does not understand that. They think that they have goodness within themselves. And so we see in this text a, a twist of divine providence. And we could say it was by Satan inciting Judas to betray Jesus that the devil really brought upon his own demise you think, well, he's bringing about Judas's demise, right? He's bringing about his own as well. Because the serpent's apparent victory in the garden and apparent victory at the betrayal and the apparent victory at the cross actually was his total defeat. As you remember in Genesis 3.15, it says the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then in 1 John 3, 8, it says, the reason the Son appeared, the reason that Jesus was born into the world was to destroy the works of the devil. And so, what were the works of the devil? It was for Jesus to be crucified. It was for Judas to betray Jesus. And really, Satan first used Peter, another insider, one of the twelve, but one who was actually committed to Christ. You remember all the way back in Mark chapter uh, 8, Satan influenced Peter to try to convince Jesus not to go to Jerusalem and be arrested. And if you remember, Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus understood that it was really Satan who was inciting Peter in that moment. 
And we know that Peter would eventually deny our Lord with his words, but he would, would repent of doing that. You see, it's never too late to repent. Because it says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Today you need to repent of your sins and find refuge and rest in Christ. That's the story of Peter. But that wasn't the story of Judas. Judas never repented. And Satan is already at work in the heart of Judas. He's also at work in the heart of these religious leaders whom Jesus called in uh, John 8.44 the children of the devil. They've already attempted to overturn the timetable of the Father. And so you see the Sanhedrin were attempting to address Jesus in a fashion that wouldn't cause an uprising or cause a protest. So they determined that they would they would arrest him after the feast. Guess what? That wasn't God the Father's plan. It was the plan of and sovereign will of God the Father that Jesus would be arrested at a certain point. Not before, not after. Jesus was the Passover lamb. So it was appropriate that he would be arrested and crucified during the Passover. What's the point of all this as we speak about God's sovereignty and the willful betrayal of Christ by Judas? Well, here's the point. As Satan gets to Judas, God takes advantage of that betrayal by sovereign determination that Jesus will be arrested during the Passover. And so that even Judas's betrayal is part of God's perfect plan. A reminder to us this morning that the devil is always working in the hearts of hypocrites. And there will always be hypocrites, even within the visible church. There will always be religious pitchmen and charlatans and even false teachers. There there will always be deceivers that will mark the church age. And there will be fakes and phonies. There will always be those who name the name of Christ, professors of Christ, not possessors of Christ. And yet, in this story of Judas's betrayal of Christ, we're also reminded that God will win in the end. Judas was eventually exposed for who he was, and Jesus did not lose at all by being betrayed. He won by willingly being arrested, by willingly dying on the cross, and then raising again on the third day. So with that as our introduction, if you'd please turn uh, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 21 this morning. Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent two, he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city 
and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he said to them. And they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now as he sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He said, He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, my friends, this is a meal that the Bible says is the most significant meal ever eaten. It's truly a high-stakes meal because this meal has eternal ramifications. It is Christ's last meal. It has both deep theological and soteriology a logical meaning, which soteriology is the study of salvation. It's the last Passover meal while Jesus is still in, on earth in which he then institutes the Lord's Supper. This is no normal meal. This meal demanded careful planning and preparation. This meal was carefully planned and orchestrated, and it was orchestrated by Jesus Christ himself. His final meal would, be, would theologically change the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper to show the value of his sacrificial death. Jesus had been in a home and had been anointed with burial perfume. We saw that uh, previously in Mark 14. That act focused on the death and burial of Jesus Christ. But this next section shows us the salvific purpose of that death and burial. Now, in the first century, the Jews combined the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. The Passover meal actually led to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And basically, you ate the Passover meal with unleavened bread. And for the next seven days, you only ate unleavened bread. And so then again, according to verse 12, we read, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Now, you need to realize that the Passover lambs were typically sacrificed on the, the day of preparation. And so the disciples wanted to know where Jesus wanted to eat this meal. The question that you might be asking is, um, uh, what day was it? On Thursday morning, they, they ate the meal and they prepared this because it says that it was on the eve of Thursday. But here's, here's a little catch in all of this. 
Uh, Jesus is the sacrificial Passover lamb. And he is our Passover. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 5.7. There it says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And then in verse 12 it says, And he sent out two of his disciples and said, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a, a pitcher of water. So here we see where um, Mark, uh, Mark tells us that two of the disciples went out, but Luke 22.8 says those two disciples were actually Peter and John. Jesus told them to look for a pitcher, a man carrying a pitcher of water, and that would have been very unusual because it was normally in that day a woman's job to go to the well and carry the pitchers of water. But you see in the Bible, Water is often pictured as a type of the Holy Spirit. And so we see this in John's Gospel, um, chapter 7 and verses 37 through 39. So if you'd please turn there. John chapter 7 and verses 37 through 39. And I'll get more into the, um, the difference between uh, Thursday and Friday in just a, a moment here. Here in John 7, starting with verse 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so you can see where these men are following this man with this pitcher of water, and that symbolizes the Holy Spirit leading the soul into a place of fellowship and communion with the Lord. Now the Passover meal was meant to be eaten within the city limits of, of Jerusalem. And so that means that they couldn't eat the meal in Bethany where they had actually been staying. They needed a place in the city. And so Jesus knew where this place would be. And so he instructed his, his apostles, two of the apostles, Peter and John, to go out. But you notice that his instructions are sort of shrouded in secrecy. You notice he didn't say, you know, just go to this house. He doesn't say go to Fifth Avenue, hang a left, and then it's the third house past the market. He didn't say that. Instead, he gives instructions that only these two disciples would be able to follow. Nobody else would be able to follow these directions and end up in the same place. Only Jesus will be able to end up in the same place which he will do later that evening with the remaining 12. So why the secrecy? Well, it's because of Judas. Remember what happened in verses 1 and 2, and then verses 10 and 11. The chief priests were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they were afraid of causing an uproar among the people. Then you remember that Judas came to them, and they were overjoyed because he just gave a solution to what they were looking for. Because G Judas 
agreed to betray Christ to them. And they paid him 30 shekels to do so. Even though Jesus was not physically present for this meeting, he knew exactly what had happened because he knows Judas's heart. He knows Judas's plans. And so in verse 12, when the disciples asked, where will you go, have us go to prepare uh, for, the, for you to eat the Passover, you have to think that at that point, Judas's ears perked up. He knew the Passover meal would be eaten in the evening after dark, and he was probably thinking that that would be perfect opportunity to turn Jesus over to the authorities. But Jesus didn't leave that open as a possibility. It's all going to happen by Jesus's timetable, not Judas's. And so the Passover meal with the disciples can't be interrupted. It can't be cut short. Judas will betray Jesus, but not until the right time, not until the determined time. It wasn't until they were all in the upper room reclining and eating the meal together that Jesus announced that there was a traitor in their midst. And then he sent Judas off to do his wicked deed. The point is that Judas is not the one getting the upper hand because of his stealth. The chief priests are not getting the upper hand because of their scheming. They are acting according to their sinful passion. But you see, Jesus is in control. Nothing will happen to him that he hasn't allowed to happen to him. Jesus is not losing the battle. He's winning the battle. And even though Judas and the chief priests think that everything is working out wonderfully for them, they don't realize that they were, are facing a miserable defeat and that their wicked deeds are actually going to be a crucial component in Jesus' triumph. This is all part of a sovereign, divine time schedule. And so again, in verse 14 of our text, it says, whenever he goes in, or wherever he goes in, now this is at following the man with the water, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may, may eat the Passover with my disciples? We don't know the man's name. There's been speculation, but regardless, he must have been a follower of Christ. And we can assume that Jesus had made previous arrangements with the owner of this room. And perhaps the man invited Jesus to use this room during the Passover. And you notice all they would have to do is say, the teacher. They knew who the teacher was. The teacher asked, where is the guest room? Now I want to point out something that uh, it's, it's a shame that the, the New King James and the version that we use uh, doesn't have an important word. It left out a word that you find in most every other version. It's the pronoun my. In other versions, it says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, of course, Peter and John are standing outside a man's house, but Jesus is calling it my guest room. 
Do you see that? He is the one who gave this man everything. This house belongs to the Lord. Everything in the universe belongs to him because he is God. And I hate to say, if anyone walks into someone else's house nowadays and says, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Probably the owner would call the police and have them arrested. But you see, God is orchestrating every bit of this. And in verse 15 of our text, we read, Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. And this room actually becomes a key uh, headquarters for the apostles, even after Christ is gone. And we see that in Acts 1, 12, and 13. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they stayed. Now, he said, you need to go to this. And you need to go into this furnished room. That word furnished there is uh, stronimai. And it means that there were carpets and it, it was fully furnished. There was carpets and rugs and, and stuff laid out in order to uh, recline because their banquet tables were not like we have where you have a tall table and chairs. Um, this was, this was a, a low table. And actually, uh, a, a dwelling like this was probably near Mount Zion, um, because over there they had found several upscale dwellings that they uh, excavated. Um, And so, very nice. This was not an abandoned factory. This was a nice place. And so, they're told to prepare this, this Passover meal. And there's a number of things, actually six of them, that they needed to have to prepare this meal. The first thing is they needed an unblemished lamb. Second is is unleavened bread. Third is bitter herbs. Fourth is is four cups or canters of red wine. Fifth is they needed water. And sixth, they need dipping sauce for the bread. Now, just to let you make you aware, those four cups, the four cups or canters of red wine, they actually represent uh, uh, the promises of the Passover. So the first cup represents the rescue from Egypt or the world. The second cup represents freedom from slavery and sin. The third cup represents redemption by God's power through Jesus Christ. The fourth cup is a renewed relationship with God, or reconciliation. So anyway, this would require careful preparation. And these two disciples were responsible for getting this all ready. And I just think about how many people are just lazy to where they don't want to get everything ready. They don't think about their their lives in service to God They only want to read the Bible once a week, but boy, they want to be a good teacher and a soul winner. They hardly ever pray, maybe only a a few uh, minutes a day, 
But man, oh man, they want to move mountains. But you, you know, when you're a true Christian and you realize that you're walking amongst the enemy and you realize that you to walk around with very little knowledge of the Bible is super dangerous, you start to get a little worried. And I think that's one of the things that we have to consider is we learn the Bible to prepare us, not to show off our knowledge or debate others, but to be thoroughly equipped unto all good works. You put that knowledge and faith to work for Christ. And I want to remind you at this point that God's sovereignty is involved in this whole scene that we just see playing out. It's clear that Jesus will be delivered. He will be delivered to the, uh, up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus knows that, and yet Jesus is still controlling the environment, planning ahead, preparing, all in spite of God's sovereignty. Which leads us to the question, what does this say about our view of divine sovereignty as to man's responsibility? I know there's a lot of good Calvinists that have perverted this understanding of divine sovereignty. They, they say they never plan, never pray, because God will take care of everything. Well, that wasn't the way our Lord Jesus Christ did it. He trusted in the sovereign timetable of his Father, and yet he planned all this. He prepared all of this in, in a very neat and orderly way, just as the Father told him to plan. And so we should plan, we should pray, and we should be prepared. We need to be prepared in life. We ought to plan ahead. But we must remember that God's sovereignty is not an excuse for us to be lazy and not do that. And so in verse 16 of our text, it says, So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. This is a fulfillment of Jesus' plan. They found the guy with the water. They followed him to the master's house. He showed them the upper room. And they ended up preparing it, just as he said. And then in verse 17, it says, In the evening he came with the twelve. They probably arrived at this room just before sunset on Thursday evening. And if you notice that uh, Mark makes a very clear note, the fact that the twelve were all there, meaning Judas had rejoined the group after his meeting with the chief priests. And he also makes a note of the time of the announcement. This takes place on Thursday night of Passion Week. In the Jewish calendar, that was the 14th of Nisan. And on that Thursday night is the Passover celebration for all the Jew, uh, Galilean Jews. In Galilee, they celebrated the Passover on Thursday because uh, they marked the Passover day from sunrise to sunrise. Now the Judean Jews from the south celebrated their Passover on Friday because they marked the Passover from sunset to sunset. 
This difference we know from the writings of the Jewish Mishnah, which is the official documents concerning Jewish conduct. But we also know this from the historian Josephus. And that's important because that allows our Lord to celebrate the Passover on Thursday night for a lot of uh, critical reasons and still be the Passover lamb on Friday. They were two authorized and legitimate celebrations. And so um, by Jewish reckoning of time, it would have been about 6 o'clock where they were. It was basically sunset. And so here you had these lambs being sacrificed, some on the 14th day of Nisan, and then you would have lambs also being sacrificed on the 15th day of Nisan. And that would be the day that Jesus was crucified. But the, the difference between the North and the South uh, Jews allowed Jesus to fully fulfill Scripture as the Scriptures all foreshadowed the uh, were shadows or pictures the Old Testament of Jesus being the final Passover lamb. And so by doing this, they also would uh, ease the line going into the temple on slaughter. Some would, uh, would go in and, and slaughter on the 14th, and some would on the 15th. And John's account actually points this out. In John 19, 14, it says, when Pilate brought Jesus out to be judged, it says there, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. He, meaning Pilate, said to them, uh, said to the Jews, behold your king. This is when Jesus is already taken away and arrested. And John says it was the day of pre preparation of the Passover. This is because the religious leaders had not yet had the Passover. They would have it in just a few hours. And so we move from anticipation of the feast on verses 12 through 15 to the arrival of the feast in verses 16 and 17, and now the announcement of the feast in verse eight, verses 18 through 21. And in verse 18, it says, Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Now this is a shocking announcement in one sense. In another sense, it might not be all that shocking because Jesus, all throughout this gospel, says that. In Mark 10, 33, Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. So the surprise wasn't so much that Jesus was going to be delivered up. The surprise was among the one who would betray him. And so we see Jesus and the disciples are celebrating Passover. And like I said, they, they would celebrate the Passover with these low tables, with pillows and you know the, the rugs and everything around. And they did this so they could relax while they were eating. And typically, they would recline and rest on their left elbow while leaning toward the table. And although some believe that the Passover was actually um, in Exodus 12 uh, uh, standing, that you would, you would eat the Passover while standing, here it says that they were reclining. And as they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus announced to the group that one of them would betray him. And he begins with the adverb, assuredly. 
meaning this is dogmatic certainty. This was going to happen. And these guys knew what that assuredly statement meant. In fact, two of those who prepared the meal, Peter and John, they were up at the mountain when Jesus used the word assuredly. And there Jesus says, you guys are about to see the kingdom of God. And moments later, he was transfigured before their eyes. And so in verse 19 of our text, we read, And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? Another said, Is it I? Their response is interesting and extremely honest. They were overwhelmed by the thought that one of them would betray him. But they apparently sensed their own sinfulness and their own own failures. They began to question themselves when they said, surely it's it's not I. It's written in this way so that it really expects a no answer. In other words, it's not I, is it? No, I think it's really interesting as I was researching this. Uh, David Garland, in his commentary on Mark, he brought out an interesting point. He said that if you look at most of the popular paintings of the Lord's uh, or the Last Supper, the disciples are all sitting around at the table and they have this serene look on their faces, except for Jesus. He looks uh, uh, shifty and dark eyed. But think about this. In reality, it probably Judas was the only one that had this serene look on his face. The rest of the disciples were probably horrified, thinking, who in the world would betray Jesus Christ? The question was going all around the table. You see, this should show us that not all hypocrites can be easily identified, and apparently Judas was a professional fake. In fact, the others trusted him so much that when Jesus announced the betrayal, they looked inward not outward. They didn't point their fingers at anyone, even Judas. He was one that they trusted. As a matter of fact, they handed over the money box. And, And he was their treasurer. And he would hold all the money for the ministry. They actually didn't know he was siphoning off the money of the treasury until after the death. So one by one, verse 19 says, they appeared sorrowful and said, is it I? I believe they're all genuine in this question, except for Judas. He's already met with these religious leaders. But one by one, they profoundly are pained to think that it could be one of them. Remember, they were at a point of vulnerability because they had just argued among them who was the greatest And Jesus had risen and washed their feet and humbling them, saying, you want to know who the greatest is? I'll show you. And he gave them a lesson on humility, so they're cut to the quick. They're vulnerable to conviction. They were true believers. Judas wasn't. Satan had already entered him. His heart was already hardened. He wasn't bothered by that announcement in the least. As a matter of fact, the faster he could do it, the the quicker he could get his money. But you see, these other guys, their consciences bothered them. 
And that's a good, a, a good lesson for true believers who are genuinely, genuinely struck with feelings of guilt. They quickly know their own depravity, their own tendencies to sin. Which one of us don't understand that? I mean, whenever we sing that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, there's a verse that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You see, true Christians are humble. True Christians are penitent. True Christians, when they're confronted with sin, don't balk and say, ah, you know what, you misread it, you're wrong. True Christians are struck with grief and conviction. And so much that these 11 disciples minus Judas actually began to think it could possibly be them. Maybe it's in their hearts. They weren't sure. I want to read a section of the Westminster Confession of Faith for you, chapter 19, because I think it speaks to the importance of true belief, or the importance of true believers being convicted and confronted with their own sin. There it says, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be there, thereby justified or condemned. I'll just stop there for a second. In other words, what it's saying is you don't earn your salvation by obeying the law. But the confession says, yet it is the law that is of great use to them as well as to others, and that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly discovering also the sinful pollutants of their, of their nature, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves, thereby they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their con, uh, corruptions in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what aff afflictions in this life they may expect. Neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it the Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. You know, for all true Christians, the eleven, they were struck with that reality. Yeah, it may be that I'm guilty of this. But then the, the tension in the room was cut with a knife. 
Jesus lets them sit there in anxiety. As a matter of fact, Jesus actually exacerbates their individual concern of their own guilt of treachery. The very treachery Jesus just announced. Notice in verse 20, it says, He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. That's as clear as mud. Every single one of them had been dipping morsels of bread into that dish and eating. And he's very vague in order for them to sit in reflection of whether or not they may be guilty. A very tense and fearful moment for everyone in there except for Judas. And remember, Judas is sitting next to Jesus in the seat of honor. John, his head is against the chest of Jesus. And then Judas and Jesus' head um, uh, is against the chest of Judas. Jesus is purposely vague. He's going to make the announcement very clear in a moment. But he needed to be careful because Peter could have been detrimental to this whole mission. Remember when in Mark, actually it'll say in Mark 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 47, that Peter took out his sword and cut off Melchizedek's ear. And so it doesn't say it, doesn't say it here, but I think you could in the back of your mind think, Peter's probably going to whoop the guy who's going to betray Christ if Christ just outright identifies him. He's not going to let it happen. But I want you to show you something super important. It's in John chapter 13. Because in John chapter 13, we, we see where Peter helps melt the chill in the room. Everyone's wondering. Everyone's going, what is going to happen? In John 13 verses 23 through 26. It says, now they're leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John, by the way. And John always mentions himself as the one whom Jesus loved. That was not an arrogant statement by any means. John said that because he could not believe the love of Christ for him. So he said, the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That is anything but arrogant. That is absolutely done in humility. Simon Peter therefore mentioned to him to ask who, who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. 
Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for the reason that he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now, commentator William Hendrickson offers four reasons why Jesus handed, uh, handled the betrayal this way. And you might think, why is Jesus playing all these games? He's not playing games. He's operating according to his Father's timetable. And, uh, and we see that in the first two of these points. The first one is Jesus does this because it serves as a warning to Judas. In other words, as Jesus hands this bread to Judas, it allows, at least for a moment, for Judas to ponder the sinful depth of his actions. It's almost as if Jesus is extending him the opportunity to repent. There are many places in Scripture where the unrepentant in their sin are warned. And so Jesus is warning Judas by giving him this piece of bread as if to say, are you really going to follow through with this? Are you really going to do this? And you might remember back in Genesis 4, God warned Cain. Cain, uh, not to do what he, he, God knew he would do. Cain ended up following through and killing his brother. But God warned Cain. We do that with our kids all the time, don't we? We warn and reprove them. We actually do that within the church. Those who profess the name of Christ. We warn them. We reprove them. And when they've committed some sin, some scandal, we don't use God's sovereignty or the doctrine of reprobation or any of that or the doctrine of pre, uh, predestination as an excuse not to warn. We warn. Because the Bible calls all men everywhere to repent. And here Jesus is warning Judas as an opportunity to repent. And so that's why Jesus hands the bread to Judas in this way. Hendrickson then says, it not only serves as a warning to Judas, but also, secondly, it highlights the depth of Christ's suffering by the fact that Judas takes this piece of bread. It points to the humiliation of Christ that the very one who is eating with Jesus is going to betray him. He would leave the feast at the moment, at that moment, to betray his master. It highlights the treachery against our Lord because remember the passion or suffering that we see in the Bible, the passion surrounding Jesus is not about what Judas is going to suffer as the son of perdition. It's all about what Christ would suffer as the son of God. And everything the gospel writer tells us 
And everything that Jesus puts in place for us to see is meant to highlight the depth and the sorrow and suffering of our Lord. Thirdly, Hendrickson says that the way Jesus handled this reveals how Jesus was in full control of every moment of his betrayal. It wasn't until Jesus told Judas to leave that he left. It wasn't until Jesus identified Judas that he had the liberty to then go to the religious leaders and then to have them take Jesus. Jesus is in full, full, sovereign control. If you would please turn to John chapter 10 and verses 17 through 18. John chapter 10. Starting with verse 17. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Folks, that is where it shows that Jesus is not a victim of circumstance. Jesus has the authority to lay down his life when he desires to do so. He was in sovereign control of the circumstances of his death, including when Jesus would leave the upper room and betray him. And then fourthly, Hendrickson says, Jesus handled the situation this way, not only because it serves as a warning to Judas, but because it highlighted the depth of Christ's suffering and because it reveals how Jesus was in control of all events. But it also allows the disciples themselves to examine their hearts. Every single one of them at the table had that tension of wondering, is it I? And it's a good warning. There's a reason that church discipline is comforting. But at the same time, it can be fearful. It's comforting to know that as a member of the church, you're being held accountable so that if you get off the straight and narrow, you can be brought back. And every time someone is put out of the church, every time there's an example of a Christian who publicly refuses to commit sin and refuses to repent, that's really a warning for the rest of us to constantly examine our hearts, to see if we are, whether or not we are in the faith, to see if there is something in our lives that we need to repent of. This was a, a sanctifying thing for the other disciples, but not for Judas, the son of perdition. It was too late for him. For the true disciples and followers of Christ, it was a chance for them to say, there but by the grace of God go I. And all of them would be tempted to forsake Jesus, and actually in some sense they did. They scattered when he was arrested. But ultimately they came back. And Jesus handles it this way for the others 
Basically, don't be like Judas. Don't betray. And then in verse 21, Jesus says, The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. It was God's will that Jesus be betrayed. Jesus didn't go to the cross as a helpless victim, but, but the obedient Son of God, obeying the word of God as it was written of him, obeying the will of God at the moment the Father wanted him to be arrested and crucified. Even Jesus' life was governed by the authority of God's word. He always said, as Scripture says, I don't know if you've ever thought of that. That Jesus believed the Bible, preached the Bible, obeyed the Bible, no matter the cost. Jesus was in full submission to the Father. No matter what the Word said, no matter where the Father told him to go, he went. If the Word said it, he obeyed it. If the Word said it, Jesus declared it. I believe the church today can't be afraid to declare God's word, God's truth, God's gospel, God's law. Forget all that wishy-washy evangelism that you see. Christ's followers need to stand on the word of God. True Christians submit to the word of God, even as Jesus did. Jesus is more than just an example. He's our expiation of sin. But he's not less than an example because he obeyed the word of God. Here we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility working together in tandem. God's sovereignty, a sovereign determination, always overrules man's sinful decisions. But we also see that Judas is culpable, he's not off the hook. Jesus said, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had, not, had never been born. Woe to that man. That proclamation of woe is a proclamation of deep condemnation. In the Old Testament, we see that. We see woe, and then we see uh, weal. Weal is proclamation of, of exuberance and grace. Woe is proclamation of condemnation. Judas was culpable culpable for rejecting Christ, and he stood condemned in his sins. Nowhere in Scripture does, say, does it say that predestination cancels out human responsibility. If you've been born into a Christian house, you as well need to look at your sin, look at your life in Christ, just like everyone else does. If you've grown up in the church your whole life, the same obligation is for you. Because it's only those who trust in Christ who can be forgiven. There is no excuse. You cannot say on that last day, well, I went to church every day it was open. I did all these things. Enough with that. It is on Christ and Christ alone. And when we repent and believe, we are saved and at that point, there is no condemnation. We need to make sure 
that if we were born in a Christian family, grew up in a church, heard the gospel, but there's no fruit, we should not have assurance. And woe to that person who has no conviction of sin, no recognition of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Those people who view the word of God and they, sit, they look at it and they apathetically walk away from it and say, I don't care. This, I believe this anyways. I believe that. Believe and stand on the word of God. A true believer studies this text and says, Dear God, help me. Help me to never look beyond Christ for my salvation. Help me to understand that he is my only hope. Help me keep my eyes on Christ. Keep my eyes on, on Jesus. Help me repent of my sin. And therefore, we, we, we repent and we look to Christ. And in him we find rest. And there we receive his free gift of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It alone instructs us in truth. It reminds us of the realities of design, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We don't always know how these things work together, and they're complex. But we do recognize that you have ordained the death of your son from before the foundation of the earth and all the events leading up to it. You've ordained the fall in the garden because in your infinite wisdom, you determine that a world with a Savior would be a better world. A world with sin, yes, disgrace, grief, but a sin but a world of sin brings about opportunity to receive a, a Savior. We thank you. We thank you for that gift of salvation. We thank you that you have put us in this world that from the beginning we were not yours but you made us yours through adoption. That you have brought us into the family. And we must remember this as we warn other people not to walk away, not to be tempted with sin, not to be tempted with betrayal and apostasy, but to be looking to Christ we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray these things in your most precious name. Amen.